Okay, so welcome to, we're starting, uh, welcome to lesson two, today's class is entitled Discovering One. We also want to take a moment, as we mentioned before, to thank Patty for sponsoring today's refreshments in honor and in memory. May the Torah learning for today be in memory of her father. And it is also being, as it's part of a Fabrengen, part of a special gathering together, celebrating 70 years of the Rebbe's leadership as we started, as you saw, 70 years ago today, the Rebbe laid down his mission statement to change the world and never stop since then. And as we're going to see, today's class is very uh, connected with today's day and the Rebbe's mission to change the world and how every single one of us is empowered to change the world. Last week, we spoke about <clears throat> the concept of charity and demonstrated the social responsibility that we as people have and has the Torah gave to every, and what the Torah's gift to civilization, the concept of charity, the concept of social responsibility, and the, the Torah's revolutionary attitudes towards tzedakah and land ownership. Today we're going to go back to where it all started. And today we're going to go back from the beginning and explore the, probably the most obvious contribution that Judaism has given to the world, which is monotheism, belief in God. Which today monotheism is the foundation for all religious and as we discussed last week, Abrahamic religions and all the world's religious beliefs. And to start today's class, we're going to ask the following questions, which you can find in the shaded box on page 38. Is monotheism significant only to your religious views? Whoops. Only to your religious views and religious life? Or does it also impact your regular life in general? So our question today, our driving question for today's class is, is monotheism significant only to religious views and religious life, or an exclusively one God also impacts the feelings, the way we go about our regular life? And that's what we're going to look at today and focus on the concept of monotheism. In today's lesson, we will explore the monotheistic revolution that's starting from our forefather Abraham. We'll discuss how this belief has positively influenced and continues to influence civilizations beyond religious practice. That means we're looking at monotheism not only from a religious perspective, but how monotheism affects our life in general, not only from a religious point of view. But in order to understand monotheism, we have to go rewind a little bit backwards. And probably this is the only class that you'll see a rabbi teaching you about paganism. In order to understand about what Abraham changed and revolutionized with the concept of monotheism, we have to understand what paganism was and is and what Abraham encountered when he came into the world. What was he dealing with? And according to Jewish, Jewish tradition, in the beginning, everybody knew that God was one. And all people knew that there was one God. But then they saw the great effects of the sun and the moon and all the celestial beings, and they started to serve them. And they said, you know what? God is way up there. And he made these servants as the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, and everything else, 
So they should be able to recognize us and be able to deal with them. And eventually they started making images in the sun, the moon, and in those type of things. Eventually what happened was, once they started serving the sun, the moon, the planets, the galaxies, and all these other type of things, and making images of the sun and the moon, false prophets came along who asserted that God himself told them that these celestial beings have now a power of their own. And these celestial images have now a power to either cause harm and have now a power to either make things good. And that's where the concept of idolatry came. And these false prophets came along and told them that when you have this image and you have this form and you bow to it and you pray to it, you can either succeed or fail. You can either be prosperous or poor and these can actually change your life. This is what the this is what happened. This is the way idolatry came, paganism began. What was the result? As we're going to learn in the following three passages, Maimonides explains that these basic beliefs became the rampant belief amongst all people. And majority, and what we're going to read in the next three paragraphs, two of them are from Maimonides, one of them is from Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. The two of them from Maimonides talks about certain pagan beliefs the way it was, and generally Maimonides talks it in a general uh, way, which applies to most pagan beliefs. And uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs sums it up based on the literature that we have found today, what people have served and did then. So let's look at Maimonides in text number 1a, page 39. Maimonides says as follows. Thus idolatrous beliefs spread throughout the world. People would worship images of all sorts of strange ways and offer sacrifices to them and bow down to them. As the years passed, the true God was forgotten from the old minds of the people and they gave him no recognition. The common people knew only the images of wooden stones and temples of stone which they had been raised from their youth to bow down and worship and in whose name they took oaths. Even the priests and wise people among them believe that there is no God other than the stars, the planets, for whose sake they have made those images. So as time progressed, people forgot or didn't know about the concept of God. And they only believed in these stones and in these images. Maimonides continues, and this Maimonides says in the Guide of Perplexed, those of you familiar with the Guide of Perplexed, is not part, the first part that we mentioned are actually from the laws of idolatry that Maimonides wrote in his book of laws, in the 14 books of laws that he wrote. The Guide of Perplexed, Maimonides actually wrote in Arabic, and that was written for people who were struggling with faith, and was written for the seemingly um, assimilated individual. And he writes as follows in text number 1b. It is well known that our patriarch Abraham was brought up among the Sebans who believe that there is no divine being except the stars. In this chapter, I will survey the books and ancient chronicles that have been translated into Arabic, and I will depict their foolish beliefs and statements according to those books. You will see that they regard those stars as deities and the sun and the chief deity. They believe that all seven stars, planets, are gods, but the sun and the moon are greater than the rest. The Sabians just believe that the universe had always existed because they delivered they believed, I'm sorry, the celestial beings to be gods. He continues. In accordance with the Sabian theories, they erected images corresponding to the less celestial beings, golden images to the sun, silver images to the moon, and so on. Moreover, 
They associated various metals and climates with the powers of the planets, saying that certain planets are the god of certain climatic zones. They built temples and placed images in them. They believed that the stars sent forth their influence to those images, enabling these images to think, comprehend, communicate, and prophetically inform human beings concerning what is good for them. So what they did was they made these images, they made these temples, causing people to further distance themselves from any belief in God whatsoever. Text number 1c takes us to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in his book, A Letter of the Scroll, talks about, sums up the different pagan religions throughout the ages, what their beliefs were. Text number 1c, page 41. Just as there were many stars and planets and countless species of animals, so too there were many gods. They fought, struggled, established hierarchies of dominance, slowly establishing order of chaos, order out of chaos. Then he continues. We have records of ancient times, and though the names of gods change, depending on whether we speak of Mesopotamia, Egypt, Canaan, ancient Greece, the stories are remarkably similar. The god of the sky does battle with the sky out of the sea, and out of his victory establishes dry land. Usually over the dead body of a slain victim, the god of lightning and rain impregnates the goddess of earth, and thus the crop grows. The land brings forth its produce. There is no sharp distinction between nature, the animals, the gods, and mankind. In the stories they told about them, the gods are usually personifications of the forces of nature, the sun, the sea, the wind, and the rain. So what we see basically in the pagan religion, gods are personifications of nature. The ancient world was one in which order was constantly threatened by chaos, at times in the form of floods of droughts, by others the war invading tribes. Through the stories they told, they explained themselves why this is so. The disturbances here reflect a more ultimate struggle elsewhere between the gods. If the god of the sky won the battle with the sea, there would be no flood that year. If the rain successfully made with the goddess of the soil, the harvest would be good. Humanity in its various gradations is replaceable. So what we see very clearly from Maimonides and from what we talk about paganism, it was a multiple effect of all different types of gods, whether it was that they got into a fight with one another and that's how things happened, that's why trouble happened. When they were getting along, good things happened and these images and models were made based on them. So here's a little exercise to put things in perspective. If you look on page 43, considering the pagan beliefs that we just spoke about in the past three texts, which one of these 11 things would be wrong or right for them? For those that don't have a book, we'll just go through them quickly. The one and only precedes and transcends all nature, non-material, omnipotent, grace uh, creates, ex nihilo, creates ex nihilo, an exclusive control of everything, creates benevolently, just and righteous, creates purposely, cares about the happen happenings in the universe, holds humankind in high regard. Do any of these apply to the pagans' gods? Anybody? Sorry? No, you're right. None of these. Clearly, the pagans didn't believe in any singular god. They didn't believe in one god. Nor did they believe in a, they, they believe in a god that is a character beyond the forces of nature. They believed that their gods were because of nature. That means the clouds and the sky fight, were having a fight, or the sea and the clouds got along. That was the cause of the different things of the gods that were going on. So based upon that, all of these things that we mentioned, and we're going to go through them one by one, we will see 
that none of these things, according to pagan beliefs, apply. So when we talk about, for example, the one and only one, on the contrary, they believed there was a finite. They believed in competing forces, influencing creations of the world. So by definitions, the gods were, um, were by definition, the gods were not omnipotent, nor in any way would they have any control in what was going on. Why? Because they were facts of nature. Number two, they weren't ex nihilo, they can't create ex nihilo, ex nihilo means something from nothing. Why? Because they themselves were created from nature, according to the pagan beliefs. The gods themselves were creatures of nature, Thus, they believed that creation of the universe was not ex nihilo. It just so happened to be some crash-bang theory, thing, some you know, type of thing like that. Continuing, what was their belief about their gods? That their gods had personal interests. If the god of the sea got along with the god of the clouds, then of course everything prospered. That means if they had personal interests, what were they pursuing? They were competing with each other for power and dominance. Sometimes they killed, sometimes they kept things alive. The gods were not interested in the world. Was there any benevolence there? Absolutely not. They were only interested in themselves. And therefore, there was no righteousness or benevolence amongst their gods. And finally, they saw their gods as indifferent to the world and to human reality. They saw their gods as merely a creation, a chaos, which came from a world order. And because of that, it had no concern to that God of what the world would happen. We were merely victims or merely products of some type of cosmic crash or bang. And that's what brought us here and that's what the pagan beliefs are. So we see something very interesting. It was in this world that Abraham was born into. This type of belief is what the pagan be- pagans believed in. And Abraham, who was born 3,833 years ago in Upper Mesopotamia, which in modern times is probably today considered somewhere between Iraq, Turkey, and Syria, around that area. There's differences of opinions of what Ur Qasdim, according to some it's a place in Iraq, according to some it's a little closer to Israel, whatever it may be. But relatively speaking, for the life of Avraham, we don't know much about his upbringing in the Torah, until he was about 70 years old, when God tells him, in the third, book, third Torah reading of the book of uh, Genesis, where God tells him to leave his parents' home. <coughs> However, the Medrash, the Talmud, fills in a little bit of the blanks for us, and tells us a little bit about Abraham, who he was, and about his discovery. Abraham was born into a family, as we mentioned, into a time and age, when pagan beliefs that we just discussed was the norm. Not only the norm, there was nobody who believed in monotheism. Not only that, but Abraham's father himself not only was an idolater, was an owner of an idol shop. He was somebody who looked to sell idols. And he had any type of idol you wanted, whether you wanted an idol that would help you for prosperity, or an idol that helped you for good luck, or whatever it was, he was somebody that made money off this pagan belief. Yes? That's, what, that's where, how did he break the idols? Because it was in his father's idol shop. Right, but he told the story that yes, he broke the idols and his father came to him and you know, said, so what? Correct, that's all from the Medrash. 
That means when he t- broke the idols, that's what we're talking about. That Abraham was born, and we're going to get into Abraham's discovery. But let's first take where he was born into before we get to his discovery. Is this when he was 70 years old? When he, no, 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 no. 70 years old is where the Torah begins to tell us about him. Ah. His discovery we're going to get to in a moment. Well, that we don't know that. The fact is that because he broke the idols, he was then summoned to Nimrod and thrown into the furnace. And his father was fully uh, supportive of the fact that he was being thrown into the furnace, though he was his son, because he destroyed the idols. At the time, later on, there is a medrash that says at the end of Terach's life that he as well joined Abraham in believing in monotheism. But at the point when Abraham was born, the world believed in paganism, Abraham was doing a self-discovery. Yes. Was he ten generations after Noah? Yes. And so when he was the first generation living without anybody that still believed in, in one God. Uh, well, when he was born, Noah was still alive. He was. Okay. Noah was still alive when he was born. Correct. There were single individuals, as we mentioned, that did believe in monotheism, Adam and Noah and so on. But the generation, and not only that, the majority, not only, almost every single person, and the king of the world at the time was Nimrod, who then called himself a god as well. And Abraham's rebellious behaviors caused that Nimrod to throw him into the furnace. Now, when we talk about Abraham's life, and at a young age, he grew skeptical of all that was going on, about everybody worshipping these idols. He saw the wind, the rain, the sun, and he said they can't be onto a power of their own. They need to be, have a driving force behind them. There has to be something behind them which is causing them to make such a diverse existence. There has to be a singular force that transcends all these things that's making these things work. They can't just happen. They're not just fighting with each other and then we're victims of their chaos as the world believed then. The Medrash describes this as a parable. Look in text number two. The Medrash says on t- page 44, a parable. A man was traveling from place to another and encountered a well-lit palace. He said, is it possible that this palace has no master? The owner of the palace looked at it and said, I am the master of the palace. Similarly, our father Abraham said, is it fathomable that the world has no master? God looked at it and said to him, I am the master of the universe. This is the background behind you, God said to Abraham. So when we find right at the beginning of the Torah reading, of the third Torah reading, when Abraham is now 70 years old, God comes to him and says, leave your parents home. This is already where Abraham makes this discovery and realizes through observing the world that there must be a master to the palace. There must be somebody behind everything, this complex creation. And as Abraham began to discover what it was, he didn't just share the secret with himself, but he made sure to go around and teach the world about monotheism. And in fact, just going back to where we started today about Yud Shvat, about 70 years ago, this was one of the first things the Rebbe mentioned in his first mission statement, how Abraham, the first thing he did, he knew about monotheism, he didn't just keep it to himself, but he went around and sheared it. Text number three. 
page 45. As Abraham, the pillar of the world, matured, it became clear to him that there is a divine being who is abstract, neither a body nor a force residing in a body, and that's all the planet and the stars are doing. He understood the worthlessness of the nonsense of which he has been raised, and he began to disprove their beliefs and demonstrate the fallacy of their outlook. He publicly taught and otherwise he called the name of God in the world, proclaiming the existence of God and his creation of the universe. So Abraham was a person who was not satisfied with what he knew. He went around teaching it to everybody. He made sure to share it with the world and tell them about monotheism. And as we mentioned before, to the extent of risking his life that he was thrown into a furnace because of his teachings of monotheism. So now we know what existed before Abraham. We know what Abraham brought to the world. But let's understand, who is this God? Let's learn a little more about who is God that Abraham was teaching about. And in order to know who is God that Abraham was teaching about, where do we look? Into the document that Abraham, children and grandchildren forever have gotten at Mount Sinai. How God miraculous, when God miraculously redeemed them, released them from Egypt. And what does it say in that document? And over here we're going to read selected verses very quickly from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, when God created the world. And when I read these verses, I will give you just a few words, just highlight them and remember those words because we're going to get back to them. So here's a few verses in Genesis chapter 1. You can see it in the shaded box on page 46. And here's how Judaism views God and his act of creation. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created, remember that word, created, heaven and earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that light was good, was good. Remember that word. And God separated between the light and the darkness. God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. Okay? We're going to go all the way to day four. God said, let there be luminaries in the expanse of the heaven to separate between the day and night, and they shall be for signs for appointed season all days and years, and they shall be for luminaries in the expanse of the heavens and give light unto the earth. And it was so. Remember, and it was so. God made two great luminaries, the greater luminary to rule by day, the lesser luminary to rule by night, accompanied by the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light in the earth and to rule by day. And to separate between night and darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, and they shall rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the animals and all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And God created man in his image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds of the sky and over all the beasts and tread upon the earth. And God said, See, I give you every seeing bearing plant on the face of the entire earth. And every tree has a seed bearing fruit. And it shall be yours for food. And it was so. Remember, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Remember that word. And it was evening and it was morning the sixth day. 
Now you learned about the God of the Jewish people. You learned how he created the heaven and earth. Let's go back to the chart. You see the chart on page 47. Do any of these apply to God or not? Sorry? Very good. Okay. All of them apply to God. Let's go through them. So while it's obvious that God is described in the Torah precedes and creates all of nature, then when I look at all this list, every single one of them deserves a check. Every single one of them apply to God. Why? Let's start from the first one. What's the first word I told you to mark down to remember is God created. created. If he created, then he is not nature. He precedes nature. He's higher than nature. What's not mentioned here, which is present by the pagan myths, is the fight of the two natures to be, create something. There's no fight. God created nature. He's not a child of nature. God brings the world into existence. And obviously, if there's only one power that brought it into existence, there's no struggles. In contrast to the pagan religion who believed in the struggles between the gods. As the creator of the nature, he transcends nature. God created nature, and because he created nature, he must transcend it. If God created the material, he, God obviously himself is not material. Let's go a step further. He created everything exactly the way he liked it. Remember the words and he says, and it is so? Good, we'll get to it in a moment. And it is so. What does it mean, and it is so? The way I mounted, that's exactly the way it came out. He is obviously omnipotent. He's all capable, with infinite powers, unlimited capabilities, creating ex nihilo, making something from nothing, because he has that power. There we go. Omnipotent. Because he says, and it was so. He continues, the key is the creation. He creates ex nihilo out of nothing. Before the world was created, there was nothing. Now that God created it as something. He has exclusive control of all existence because he is the cause of all existence. In many pagan beliefs, creation is, an, is a result of a jealousy and an envy and a struggle and a fight between the different stars and galaxies and angels above. That doesn't exist when we believe in one God. God is a benevolent God. He creates benevolence. There is no selfish being. He's not jealous of another God. He created everything and he creates it in kindness and in a just way. Continuing in the stories of the Bible, as we see in the stories of the flood, and we see in the stories of Sodom and Amorah, where God sees terrible events happening in the world, and he doesn't just ignore them, he is not indifferent of them. But he actually sees them and he's therefore righteous and looks and addresses the, and he makes sure and he demands that the world is just and demands from us to be just. As we're going to get to in lesson number six to talk about it further. What else do we find? The word good 
in the six days of in the first chapter of the book of Genesis is mentioned six times. The word very good is mentioned one time on Friday when God created the universe. What does that tell us about God? That the creation that God made the world was purposeful. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't because things clashed and crashed and all of a sudden they came to being. It was a concentrated effort, a desired way and a method and a mythology and a purposeful way because he wants it to be good, not only good, but very good. And therefore, God cares about what's happening in the universe. And the same way he cares about what's happening in the universe, he wants us to care about the universe. He wants us to care about every human being, as we're going to talk about next week and the following week, how every life is sacred and every human being and every single thing is meaningful. God is not indifferent to the world. The creation of the world, every single part of the world, makes a difference to him. God has a profound concern of everything that transpires in this world. What we see from here is, very clearly, we see the major differences between, the, the, the major differences how man is so significant to God, while in the pagan religions, man was only by chance, a circumstance, if that. While when God created the universe, the words when God creates the human being, He creates them in the likeness of God, in His image. We are given a mandate to the world. When God created the human being, there's a purpose and a reason that He said, I want you to be here. And every single day that we're alive, as we're going to get to, is that we have to live a dignified purpose, a godly-like purpose, while we're in the world. God gives us a dignified position in this world that he makes us in his image. So now we see a very clear contrast to monotheism versus paganism. What was Avram's revolution? What was Avram's concept, which is monotheism, which is the foundation, a principle of Judaism? Automatically, dramatically, change the life for better. When we have monotheism, it changes not only our religious belief, but it changes society outlook on life for the better. And we'll start with one simple but crucial benefit that monotheism gives, which is the gift of purpose. Monotheism introduced into our thinking the search for rational purpose of, of existence. Text number four. The account of creation in the first chapter of Genesis is stunningly original. Quite unlike any other antiquity, there are no contending forces, no battles of gods, no capricious spirits. God speaks and the universe comes into being. God is not, and not in the nature but above it transcending it and ordering it according to his word. Nature has no will or set the wills of its own. This was the immense intellectual leap. If God created the world, then it is in principle intelligible. The mists of irrationality have been dispelled. What we see, the moment we know that there is one God who transcends nature, the moment I believe in monotheism, 
I automatically believe that there's no mistake. We didn't just end up here. And if there's no mistake for the reason that I'm here as a single creator, that means I have a purpose of what I'm doing here. Now it's possible to think intelligently, what am I doing here? Because there's a single creator, because there's a creator of the universe who purposely puts me in this world, there's a reason why God put me in this world. Why God gave humanity? Why did he put us here? What are we doing here? So the gift of meaning, the gift of purpose, can only come with monotheism. The single creative intelligence, the single concept is that God made man's search for meaning, for purpose, possible. Because if I believe I'm just a mistake, who says it, then there's no purpose of me being here. But if I believe that there's a monotheistic approach, which is that there is one creator, a single creator, who created the world, that means the reason why I'm here. Which brings us to a critical perspective of an underlying driver of human behavior. Put forth by a great psychologist by the name of Dr. Viktor Frankl. And I'm sure you heard of him before. Dr. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist from Austria who survived the Holocaust. An interesting thing about him, Before World War II, Frankl dedicated his practice to helping young kids. They found that in Vienna, during finals especially, that means at the end of the year, the suicide rate skyrocketed. And um, he decided, he opened up a clinic, actually a free clinic, to helping kids avoid suicide. And in fact, once he was uh, in 1930, during, in the 1931, thanks to his counseling, not a single high school student committed suicide that year because of his counseling. Now, Frankel was a student of Freud, and after the Holocaust, and even before, rejected everything that Freud taught him. Freud's theory, not to get too deep into it, was that deep down we're all evil, And that's basically what we're doing, is satiating our desires. The id, so to speak. Viktor Frankl came along and said, on the contrary, that really deep down we all have a deeper meaning. And after he saw people in the Holocaust survive, not only survive, but thrive, even though they lost everything that they had dear and felt no desire to live. He said, but what happened? In the camps he saw, they had a strong sense of purpose to live. They had a strong reason to live. And they were able to endure. And Frankel said, you can see it in text number five, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. It's actually a quote from a German uh, philosopher from the 1800s, but the point that he made was, he who has a why can always find, can live, can bear with almost any how. That means the purpose of meaning. What's the most powerful reason that gives people to live? What's the drive that gives people the ability to thrive regardless of what circumstance they're through is when they have purpose, when they have meaning. When we have no meaning in life, when we wake up in the morning, we don't know why we woke up. 
then everything is a problem. Then everything is a challenge. But all of a sudden, when we wake up in the morning and we have a purpose, we have a reason, and what he tried to move people away from is don't get preoccupied with what you need. Become occupied with why you need it. Why are you here? When you, become, when you contribute to a helpful and significant and meaningful way, your satisfaction comes from not what you have, not from what you need, but from what you, who you are, from your purpose of what you contribute to this world. And because of that, he founded the concept of after the war called something logotherapy. The word logotherapy comes from the Greek word called logos, which means meaning, which is founded upon the idea that finding purpose and meaningful life, not the pursuit of pleasure, as argued by other psychotherapists, like Freud before him, just as long as your gut is filled, and as long as, and what you would call today in the American dream, eat, marry, and be happy, and for tomorrow you die, that was the way of thinking. That's what causes people depression. You know why most Americans are on antidepressants? Because that's the life they live. Eat, be merry, and tomorrow you die. There's no purpose. What's motivating them to be alive, to wake up? They're only alive because they weren't hit by a truck. But in fact, when a person has this mindset that there's a purpose, there's a reason, raising the thread, there's a reason why they're alive, all of a sudden, there's a certain happiness, there's an inner joy. There's something worth living. It's just an interesting note, the concept of happiness, I think we're going to get to in a moment, you'll see. What does the word happiness mean? What is happiness? Where does it come from? We say mishaps versus happiness. Happiness comes from happens to be, right? Or a mishap happens when you didn't happen to have it. People believe, okay, what was the pagan belief? I happened to have that type of luck. They clashed in the right way, therefore I got it. If they clashed in a different way, then I didn't get it. Before Abraham, that's what they believed in. Before Abraham, that's what happened. Before Abraham, battles created the world. Because of that, there was conflicting purposes, there was no need. And therefore, there was no dignified purpose for me to be here. I just happened to be here. Okay, eat, be merry, and tomorrow I die. If I'm here today, I'm tomorrow, I'm not here. Big deal. What happens? After Abraham introduces monotheism, and I believe that God created the world, all of a sudden I have one singular purpose. Why? Because God created me. That means there's a reason and a purpose why I'm put here in this world. And then all of a sudden... Creation is kind, and all now there's a dignified purpose of what I'm here. What that purpose is, maybe we'll discuss later. But at the end of the day, there is a purpose. And therefore, we're not because of some battle that we ended up here. There's a reason that God put us here in this world. A dignified reason. Because remember, God is benevolent. God doesn't put us here so I can just stand in front of four people and get some nickels. There's a reason, a dignified purpose. A real purpose. Because only an omnipotent uh, uh, God who lacks nothing 
can say that I have created humankind benevolently because he's not getting anything from it. Only a God who is above and transcends creation, has no limitation, can really give us a gift of purpose. Avram's monotheism, the first gift that Abraham's monotheism gave us, is the gift of purpose. That we can wake up in the morning and know that the very fact that I am alive is because God decided I'm alive and God needs me here and God wants me to be here and that's why I'm alive. I said the story many times. It's a true story. And I think it just drives the point home, especially talking about suicide. There was the 16-year-old kid who was, wanted to commit suicide. All the doctors came and talking, trying to convince him out of it and his mother's crying on the side. He's not giving up. He said, I'm just a struggle on my family. They don't want me anyways. I'm done. And done. Finished. He's given it up. And everybody's coming to him, tell him, no, your parents really love you. They really care for you. So what do you mean they really love me and care for me? They want they, I'm just making them problems ever since I've been around. Finally, they didn't know what to do. So the last result is they call a rabbi. And they called Rabbi Manus Friedman from Minnesota. And he went over to this child and he said, you know, you're some idiot of a kid. And he says, all of a sudden the kid's listening. Oh, <laughs> how did you know? I know I'm an idiot. That's why I should kill myself. He says, I know, yeah. You're giving everybody a hard time. You're, uh, and yeah. He says, but there's only one person who believes in you. Actually, one entity that believes in you. And that's God. He says, what do you mean? He says, because if God wouldn't need you, then you wouldn't be here. And God thinks you have a purpose. True, your parents may not love you. True, they want to, oh, but God wants you. God says that you have a purpose, you have a need. All of a sudden, the kid's listening. Promising him cars, wealth, needs. I don't need needs. Who needs needs? You need it today, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Purpose, meaning. I'm a reason that I'm needed. I'm needed. I have purpose. I'm useful. That's what monotheism tells us. Versus the other beliefs. Versus the way the world thinks. The greatest gift that monotheism gives to the world is the gift of purpose. But then there's one other gift that we'll talk about today. And that is the gift of hope. The gift of hope and confidence. When we read the first chapter of Genesis before in the condensed version, God says, and it was so. Many times after he creates any item during the six days of creation, and it was so. Meaning that the creation was exactly the way God intended. Well, hey, if God made it, wouldn't you think it's the way he intended? He's not a sloppy carpenter like I am. He knows the way he thinks of visions and something, and that's the way he wants to do it. That's the way it comes out. When we understand that nothing can stop God from doing it, doesn't only mean that it was so. That means God had deliberately made it so. And it was so means God intended that it should be exactly the way it is, not a millimeter or a millisecond differently. But then there's another key word he says. And it was good. Not only was it good, but it was very good. So that when God made the world, 
not only did he make it exactly the way he wanted, and not only did he make it then, but he continues to make it exactly the way he wants it. It's deliberate, deliberately good. Remember, remember that God said good and very good. The implication is that God is not indifferent from the creation. God is not living someplace way off, but He is involved in everything we do, knows what's going on. Part of His creations have an effect on what they do. That means because that's why it's purposeful for us what we do because God put us here for a reason. And the central theme of the book of Genesis is that exactly the way God wants the creation of the world and continuously creates the world is exactly and it's so. Not only is it so, but it's very good. This is in stark contrast to paganism and their falsehoods. Text number six. The God of the Jew possessed one of these traits, which is, I'm sorry, the God of Jews possessed none of these traits, which, in greater or lesser degree, characterized gods of their neighbors. It is there we come to the supreme achievement of the Jewish thought. In the character it is described to the God is discovered to be one. The Greeks, the Romans, the Syrians, and most of other Mediterranean peoples would have said two things about our gods. Characters. First, the gods tend to be immoral. Second, toward man they are preponderantly indifferent. The Jews reverse the thinking of their contemporaries on both points. Whereas the gods of Olympus tirelessly pursued beautiful women, the god of Sinai watched over the widows and orphans. Text number seven. Throughout the Mesopotamian text, we are overhears of tones and anxiety, which seems to express a haunting fear that unaccountable and turbulent powers may at any time bring a disaster to human society. In paganism and in other religions, the pagan worldview is that God is needy. They have to give him sacrifices because he's needy. The human plight, he doesn't like what's going on, he's destructive, he's hurt. It was just a question when we look about in the pagan and the non in the pagan religions, it's about being in the right place in the right time or being in the wrong place in the wrong time based on what you're going to get hit by by any type of God in any type of way. In the monotheistic belief of Avram, however, there are three important key factors that are emphasized. That God is number one, inherently good. Just like God is merciful, so you have to be merciful. Just like God is kind, so you have to be kind. God is inherently good. Number two, God is infinite. He has unlimited abilities. There's nothing that limits him. And number three, God loves his creations and cares about us. These points are what we call in Hebrew, to sum it up in one word, bitachon which means faith, faith in God. We have faith in God and we trust that everything will turn out well, as we're soon going to see in the next, follow, in the next text, because we know that God is A, inherently good, has unlimited abilities, and loves His creation. If you won the lotto and you trust the person to tell, what kind of person would you tell? A person who you know, A, is good, has the, ability, has the ability to help you, should you need help, and C, loves you, cares for you. 
Would you tell it to a person who's not good? Absolutely not. Would you tell it to a person who can't help you? Why would you tell them? Would you tell it to a person who doesn't care for you? Also not. So think about it. If this is who you trust as a human being, how much more you can trust God because he has all these things. Follow? Text number 8a, page 51. When you know that there are people who have compassion and pity for you, you will trust them and be at peace in all matters which you depend on them, provided that they are strong, undefeatable, and cannot be prevented from fulfilling what is requested of them. But if they are weak, they cannot be relied upon, even if it is clear that they are compassionate and caring due to the many areas in which they are restricted. In addition, you must be certain that they are absolutely generous and kind. So number one is they have to be caring and capable. Now, if people all have all these traits, it would behoove those who know this to place their trust in them and to be totally at peace, internally and externally, in their hearts and limbs, to be faithful to them and to accept favorably, regard all their judgments and actions. What does this tell us? That now you can relax. Why can you relax? Because we know that God cares about us. He has the ability to help us and is inherently good. He's perfectly capable of delivering all the good that we need and everything that is possible. This sound trust in God brings automatically to a person a certain serenity, a certain peace, joy, confidence. I'm taken care of. There's nothing for me to worry about. I'm in good hands. He has the capable to take care of everything I need. He's a kind and he cares. What more can I ask? The Chayvah Salavavis, which is written by Rabbi Bachia Ibn Pkuda, Duties of the Heart, writes as follows. Text number 8b. The benefits of trust in God, listen to this, include tranquility of the heart in the face of worldly worries. The one who trusts finds serenity, security, peacefulness within this world. As it is written, blessed is the man who trusts in God. God will be his reassurance. This serenity, this peace, would never happen in a pagan belief. Why? Because what's the first thing that the pagan beliefs say? What are their gods? Selfish. They're fighting over power. They could care less about you. You're just a victim of their circumstances. They're competing for each other. Only a, only a, a belief who's omnipotent, who's good, God and caring, only then can we have proper serenity. Only then can we see the trust and have that peace and tranquility in God. Does that mean that things will always turn out the way we think? Does that mean that things will always turn out what is best for us? Absolutely, always be that is best for us. Do we always perceive that it's best for us? No. But like that great philosopher, Jewish philosopher said... If I knew it, if I knew him, I'd be him. If I knew all the reasons why God did it, then I'll be God. The reason why I don't know it is because I'm not God. When it comes to a physical understanding, you see, what's the difference between a child and Einstein? You can see it's a massive difference. Einstein was this genius, and this child barely knows how to read. The difference is that child can be an Einstein. You can never be God. Newsflash. 
If you were to know everything that why God does it, they say there was a story of once a bunch of big philosophers sitting around the table and discussing everything that was going on, thinking if they were God, how would they do things differently? And a young child walks sincerely and says, you guys got it all wrong. If you'd be God, you'd be doing it exactly the same way God's doing it. Because you don't understand why he's doing it. We know that what God does is for the best of us. Why? Because God's caring, kind, and able to do what he needs. Why we don't perceive it? Because we're not God. And we'll never be God. Whereas the very famous saying is, everything will be good in the end. And if it's not good, it's not the end. Who said that? Oh. Come on. God. John Lennon, right? John Lennon. Oh, really? That's what they say, but it's not his. He got it from a, a Portuguese author. <laughs> Everything will be good in the end. You hear John Lennon, you woke up. Huh? Everything will be good in the end. And if it's not good, it's not the end. You got it? And he's dead. That's so? Maybe that's good. <laughs> you follow? Even if we don't understand God's goodness, something that has been done, the very fact that the belief that we know that God is good, and everything that he does is just, is exactly the way it's meant to be, as he said in the first day of creation, and it is so. That in itself, that trust, gives us no reason to worry. Because every aspect of creation is purposeful, and we're here for a purpose, and everything that happens is by divine design. Some things we perceive as good, and sometimes they're not so good. And some things we perceive as not that great end up being really good. Why? Because it's not our perception that matters. It's God's perception. And as long as we put our trust, not belief, our trust in God, we can then be calm, hopeful, joyful, and confident. Now, granted, it's not an easy task. It doesn't happen automatically. And we need to constantly remind ourselves that God is in control. And not everybody is like Abraham who has that ability to walk around and tell the world. But what, look at Abraham. Abraham was telling, the, it wasn't that people at the time of Abraham, because they didn't believe in monotheism, they had some impending doom and gloom coming upon them. And every person that's an atheist or doesn't believe in monotheism is always walking out of a frown. But what this does tell us is, but optimism any real basis of optimism could not exist in the pagan religion. Why? Because the bottom line of, 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 of uh, pagan religions are that there's clashes, it's selfishness, it, you're only a matter of a circumstance. How can you have any trust in such a situation? Real trust, real confidence, real optimism. You know what they talk about real optimism? There was this kid who was really overconfident and always very optimistic. And his parents had a problem with that because since he never realized maybe there'll be negative circumstances. So his parents took him to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, you know what? I'm going to teach him. I have something I can teach him. He will lose his optimism very quickly. They put him in a room. It was full of horse manure. They closed the door. Now looking through the window to see this kid go berserk and crazy. Uh -huh. But instead of going berserk and crazy, what's the kid doing? He's sitting there and he's digging, he's digging, and he's playing with the horse manure. <laughs> and after 15 minutes, they open up the door and they ask the kid, what are you doing? Doesn't it stink? Doesn't, what are you digging? 
He said, with so much manure, there got to be a pony down there. You see? <laughs> text number nine. Let's see this point in text number nine. Page 53. Hope is one of the greatest Jewish contributions in Western civilization. So much so that I have called Judaism the voice of hope in the conversation of humankind. In the ancient world, there were tragic cultures in which people believed that their gods were the best indifferent to their existence, at worst, actively malevolent. The best humans can do is to avoid their attention or to appease their wrath. In the end, though, it's all in vain. We are destined to see our dreams wrecked or rocks of our reality. This was the pagan religions. Listen to this. I'm sure you never know this. Anybody familiar with Hebrew here? The great tragedians were Greek. Biblical Hebrew did not even contain the word that meant tragedy. Did you know that? In the Greek sense, modern Hebrew had to borrow the word, hence called tragedia. Do you ever heard that? the word tragedia? That's what they say in Hebrew. What does tragedia mean? Does it sound similar? Very good. In Hebrew, there is no such thing as tragedy. Why? Because everything is purposeful, everything has a reason, and there's always hope. There's always trust. Hope is not an unknown in such cultures, but it was Aristotle defined as a walking dream, a private wish that things might be otherwise. In other religions, hope was a distant dream. You know, you dream of hope, not something which is tangible. Judaism, monotheism, makes hope tangible. There's no such thing as circumstance that you're in. It's always about what you're going to do, the purpose that you have. The very basis of optimism and hopeful thinking that's critical to human happiness is all a gift of monotheism. That Jews and Judaism spread throughout the world all what Abraham taught, this idea. Over here, we're just going to show an interesting video where actually this idea is brought down into scientific research. There was a Jewish doctor, as you'll soon see, a professor at Harvard, a psychologist, who tested 125 students and showed how the trust in Hashem worked better than any other therapy. Here's the video. Give it a second. Our computers be it. Oops.
and I met with a number of uh, rabbis from around the country. And uh, I asked them a question. I said, how would you help a person build faith and trust in God? And they gave me concepts, but they also gave me exercises. One of the concepts in, in trust in God is a belief that God is intimately involved in every detail of a person's life. It's not just that God created the world and set it into motion and let it go. That would not be uh, the Jewish belief of God. But rather, trust in God entails believing that every breath, every movement, everything that happens, whether externally or internally, is ultimately in God's hands. One of the exercises involves thinking about God's involvement in day-to-day -day exercises. For example, standing up from one's chair. Can we picture that, yes, I'm choosing to stand, but God is enabling me to stand. God is helping my ligaments to stay intact. He's helping my muscles to move. He's helping my central nervous system to be able to coordinate the entire process. I'm not in control of any of that. My muscles, or my ligaments, or my central nervous system, or my blood, or my pulmonary system. All of that is out of my hands. I can choose to act, to try to stand up, but all I'm doing is trying to make a move. I'm not actually completing it. That is a godly matter. To elevate the effectiveness of this program, Dr. Rosemary selected 125 individuals suffering from elevated stress levels and divided them into three groups. One group received a standard clinical relaxation treatment, another received no treatment, and a third group engaged in the Trust in God program. The question was, is that going to help people who worry and who have anxiety in order to overcome their levels of stress? We compared that in a, a randomized controlled trial, Trust in God training, to something called progressive muscle relaxation. That's also a way of being able to control one's anxiety. And we had a third group of people who received no treatment at all. And what we found was that the, the trust in God condition, people who completed that, they did substantially better, and the effects were actually very significant. Um, in statistical terms, there was a two-standard deviation decrease in anxiety and worry over only a two-week period, which is very, very significant. To the doctor's surprise, the remarkable results were long-lasting with post-treatment follow-ups showing no weakening of the anxiety-reducing effects of the program many weeks later. What we found is that higher levels of belief associated with greater reductions in depression over time. It really provided clear evidence that working on one's faith can reduce levels of anxiety and depression and make things better. Experimental clinical evidence people don't have a sense of purpose, they don't think that they're going somewhere. It's almost like an existential crisis, like who am I, what am I doing here, what's the point of all this? It's, a, it's an easy catalyst for, for depression. Faith can be, it's probably the most common around the world way of establishing a sense of purpose. I'm doing this as a part of my godly mission. This is what I'm here to do, this was destined. Those are powerful ideas and messages that can have a massive impact on the way we think and the way we feel in the day.
page 54. Try one of these uh, exercises. So if you take a moment, you don't have to answer, just think in your mind as we go through steps one, two, and three. Recall an experience you've had in which after a period of doubt, things turned out unexpectedly well, okay? So think of something in your mind, which after a period of doubt, you weren't sure how it was going to work out, but all of a sudden it worked out great. Now, now you have that. If you can recall the feeling and thoughts you had before the unexpected results, before you heard the good news, the nervousness, the anxiousness, what it was like. Now let's go a step further. Think of a concern that you are presently facing. How might that experience that you just faced, that you just thought about, coupled with the teachings that we learned now about trust, that we examined, how can they be used to change your current feeling? Again, think of something you may be currently concerned about, how your past experiences you saw had unexpectedly worked out well, based on what we learned today, that God is caring and is, has everything right and is capable of making everything the way it's supposed to, that it will all work out for good. Give Don't make, maybe you're not perceived good and so on mm-hmm. at the same time. These two extraordinary ideas that we just learned, the sense of purpose, whoops, sorry about that. Give me a second, just trying to get to the next slide. There we go. Okay, sorry about that. That's the kettle. There are two, uh, these two extraordinary things, the sense of purpose that gives us a drive to live and the optimism that things will be good are major themes in today's psychology and psychotherapy. And today some people may say, you know what? I can assume positive attitudes and exist on some level, independent belief of the Creator. Fine. Why do I have to believe God to be able to be optimistic? Seemingly, I can find a purpose in life without believing in God. I don't need God since it's impersonal. I have other things. Why do I need God for it? Why do I need monotheism to help me have hope, optimism, or purpose? Because at the end of the day, the only thing that is certain at the beginning of the day is only if you believe in God. When you believe that your life has meaning and purpose, the things that you may have without putting God into the picture are only presumptive. They're not necessarily so. Only when you have knowledge that God created things purposefully, you know that everything has a reason and a purpose and a time and a place and that He cares and that He's good, and only then can you know that there's reason that you're on track and you know that it's likely going to work out. Because for all you know, if your purpose is without God, who said that's a purpose even? Who said it's even a dignified purpose? Who said you're even hoping for the right thing? Maybe you're hoping in something wrong. 
So the question is, is monotheism important only because it's emotionally and psychologically soothing? Is that the only reason why monotheism is important? That means, am I only having faith in God or believing in monotheism because of the perks that come with it? If I can seemingly do it on my own, it's arbitrary, maybe impersonal. Yes, that's certain. But I have a certain degree of purpose that I can have without it. Is monotheism only for its benefits? Let's find out. Text number 10. The Medrash says a uh, parable. An analogy, a king entered a province accompanied by dukes, perfects, and commanders. One person said, I am taking a duke as my patron. Another said, I'm taking a perfect as my patron. And still another said, I'm taking a commander as my patron. One clever individual was amongst them and said, I am taking the king. So was with the nations of the world. Some said they worshipped the sun. Some said they worshipped the moon. Some said they worshipped wood and stone. But the Jewish people serve none other than God himself. This is the intent of the verse. God is my portion, said my soul. Whose oneness I proclaim twice each day. Hear, O Lord. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Medrash tells us. Yes, there are clever people who can appreciate benefits and take things that are arbitrarily they can see and they may be purposeful for them. But as Jewish people, we have over here something different. You can appreciate benefits, but you can believe in God because you have a soulful connection. When we have a monotheistic belief, when we believe in God, it's not because of the benefits that I can be purposeful. Yes, that's a good, nice perk. And it's not because I want to have that trust in God. It is because I have a soulful connection to God that automatically connects me with God. I have a relationship. I am not dependent on God because of a perk and a benefit that I get from it. I am dependent on God because God is who I am, is what it makes me. The first Chabad Rebbe once put it this way. And in intense contemplation, the first Chabad Rebbe would say, text number 11, when our master and teacher, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, would enter a state of spiritual ecstasy, he would say, we heard exclaiming, I want nothing at all. I don't want your paradise. I don't want your world to come. I want nothing but you alone. What the Alter Rebbe was saying over here, he's willing to forgo all the spiritual perks. He's not here to gain brownie points. We're not in this world because we're getting perks. We're not in this world because we're having benefits. It's not a question of friends with benefits. It's a, in a matter of a relationship. A relationship with God does not depend on benefits. It's being with God. That's exactly why our belief in monotheism is all about. The same thing as our discussion today. The greatest gift of monotheism is monotheism itself. The greatest gift of believing in God is the belief in God itself. This is the unique individual's path that we should choose. As we see in text number 12, this is the whole reason of the man, to come to the glory of God and splendid majesty of his greatness. Each person according to their capacity as it is written in the Zohar, God's creation of the world is so that humanity may know him. Think about that a moment. We spoke about God creating the world for a purpose. We spoke about that every single thing in this world is there for a purpose. And over here, the Zohar tells us, you want to know what your purpose is? To know God. 
You know why you want to know why God put you here in this world? Is to have a relationship with God. The reason why we here exist in this world, our purpose of existing, or in the words as the, the fancy French, raison d'etre, right? Did I pronounce it correctly? No? Very good. But there you got it anyway. D'etre, right? Or something like that. Is to discover and explore our godliness. To know God. To contemplate in God's great Leidas Hashem in the words of the Maimonides and to bring about the glory of God into this world. Does it take away all the other benefits? Not at all. But the relationship with God is to have a relationship with God. The belief in monotheism is to believe in monotheism, to believe in God. Of course it comes with benefits. But that's not the reason. That's not our purpose. How do we know that we've adequately served God in the right way? How do we know that we've done our job and we're living for that purpose? Is when we can see the effect. Because if you believe in God to the proper extent and your relationship is only to know God, then you will automatically have that happiness, that joy, that motivation, that optimism. All those perks will automatically come with it. A person who truly lives his life for the purpose of God has an inner joy in him has a certain peace, serenity, that resonates within himself because of that belief that they have. Exercise 2.4, you don't have to answer out loud. On a scale from 1 to 10, ask yourself, how often do I contemplate about God being the creator of the entire universe, including myself and all aspects of my life? How might I specifically benefit if I thought about this more often, perhaps on a regularly scheduled basis? What is preventing me from making regular meditation about the creator part of routine? What steps can I take to practice more of this routine? In fact, somebody asked me a few days ago, what do I think about meditation? So I said, what are you going to think about? It all, what are you meditating about? It all depends what you're meditating. I can sit and have other, you know, who knows what. That's not going to help you. It's called going taking a nap. In fact, meditation is a very difficult work. The second Chabad Rebbe who wrote volumes and volumes of meditation, it says that when he would meditate, you saw sweat coming from the top of his hat. That's how difficult of a work it is. It's not just your mind wandering and living in some type of ecstasy. When we talk about meditating in God, meditate, take for a moment, I challenge you. If you take every single day, if you can, three minutes before you say the Shema, and think about what is Shema Yisrael? Who is God? Why are you? What is your relationship with God? That God put you in this world. Close your eyes and think about God and your relationship with God and the reason that God put you here in this world and He knows exactly what you're here for and how it's all going to work out and that is your relationship with God. Because God put you just to know. Three minutes. I guarantee you after five, it's not, it's not, hard, it's not easy. It's going to be hard. But after doing it for five days, you will walk out with a certain calmness, a certain serenity, that it's going to be okay. I'm fine. Three minutes. Because the purpose of existence, when you realize that God put you here for a reason, you are the purpose of existence. God knows what, why you're here, why we're here, what our moment is from the time of Abraham. What Abraham made it clear in his mission was to spread the message in the world 
of monotheism. He set himself to the task of informing every adult and child that he met that there is a single creator of the universe who cares for who they are, where they are, and what they are, and put them here for a purpose. As the hearers of Avraham, we should be doing the same. Just to complete the circle, this is what we started our class today with the video of the Rebbe that the Rebbe said 70 years ago. In 770 Eastern Parkway to barely 25 people, 50 people who were sitting there on the day that he accepted leadership. A fragmented world, a world that came after the Holocaust, thinking that who knows what's going to happen to Judaism. Entire Hasidic sects were destroyed. Nobody left. Chabad wasn't even able to make a minion on 770 Eastern Parkway. The Rebbe said, what is our job? God gave us a garden. Basi Ligani, he gave us a garden. We have to tend to it. It's not a destructive, circumstance, evil world. It's a beautiful orchard. We have to make it beautiful. How are we going to make it beautiful? By going back to our forefather Abraham, the same way Abraham didn't just keep the message for himself. But if he knew Aleph, he taught Aleph. He knew Bayes, he taught Bayes. He knew something, he knew that there's one God. He went and every single person he met and he taught them about it. So too, we too today. It is our job as we prepare the world for Mashiach. And the only way we're going to make the world ready for Mashiach is we teach them about God, monotheism, and teach them the gift that Judaism gives to the world. This unbelievable gift. The belief in one God is not just a Jewish requirement. Every single human individual has a requirement to believe in God. It's one of the seven Ochaid laws. And when we teach the world of these concepts, these benefits, all of a sudden we won't have a world chasing every type of endeavor, every type of uh, desire. There'll be more purpose, more meaning, more feeling, and the world will feel the knowledge of God very soon. Just a quick review of what we learned today. Peter going slow today. Sorry about that. The greatest gift of my one slide. There we go. Lesson 2. Discovering 1. 1. Beyond Judaism's direct influence on the world's major religions, elements of the Jewish concept of monotheism have greatly influenced modern thinking in general. 2. The pagans believed that the various forces of nature were God, each vying for dominance, and all indifferent to humankind. 3. Abraham spread the belief in the one non-material benevolent God who created the world and humanity for a dignified purpose. Four, knowing that the entire universe was created intentionally by our God brings us to the realization that the world in general and our lives in particular have a purpose. Meaning and purpose give us motivation and happiness in our lives. Five, we can be optimistic realize that God has exclusive control over all that transpires in the universe. 
and that he is interested in our benefit and good. Six, recognizing, contemplating God's oneness and greatness is not only a means to an end, but is humankind's goal in and of itself. Next week, lesson two. Oops. Next week we talk about the divine image. What makes us human? What is the value of human life? When the Torah taught us the man was created in the image of God, what does that really mean? To your question about Terach, just to your point, I want to show you the appendix text number 13. So you see that he's, he wasn't too thrilled about his son's behavior. <laughs> he was polite. Because he really believed in them. 